you are now listening to the Autoimmune Doc Podcast with Dr. Taylor Crick. Dr. Taylor is an expert in helping those suffering with autoimmune disease, and he himself has autoimmune disease. Autoimmunity is rampant today, and the purpose of this podcast is to educate about the underlying causes and natural solutions to halt autoimmune disease progression. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. For more information from Dr. Taylor, visit www.autoimmunedocpodcast.com. Without further ado, here is your host, Dr. Taylor Crick. All right, welcome to the Autoimmune Doc Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Taylor Crick, and I am back with another episode. It's been a little while. I say that pretty often, but this is a really important episode. I'm really, really excited to put this content out and just talk about um, because I think it's just one of the most important things with when dealing with chronic and complex illnesses. And I think that it's gained more popularity in the last several years, more importance, especially with regards to long COVID and the rise of some of these neuro stress response, PTSD related health conditions where people, their stress response system is more easily triggered by trivial stimuli. I think that this is just a timely timely uh you know episode here now also i just released an episode that was a, an interview with my friend and colleague dr mark sue and then i have another episode that's coming up about uh vestibular rehabilitation so i wanted to get this one done before i do the one about vestibular rehab because i think this segues into vestibular rehab and vestibular rehab is a part of of today so this episode is about retraining your nervous system retraining your stress response system, but especially your nervous system and kind of the the PTSD that that so many people feel like they have. I feel like this episode is a culmination of like all the things that I know a lot about. You know, as you listen to this podcast, you know, I know a lot about the brain and different regions of the brain, the different neurotransmitters and the amygdala versus the cerebellum versus, you know, the pituitary hypothalamus, etc. But also, you know, being a chiropractor, having my doctorate in chiropractic, chiropractic is the study of the nervous system. So for many years, I was doing, you know, hands-on adjustment and teaching people about their spine and their nerves and how the nerves connect the brain to the body and things like that. I don't do that as much anymore with what I do with, with functional medicine, but still, that's, that's my expertise is, is chiropractic and the nervous system. And then just throughout my life, and especially in my in the business world and things like that, I've read so many books on neuro-linguistic programming, on rewiring the brain, on the power of your subconscious mind, on becoming supernatural and following people like Joe Dispenza or, or, or others, and just so many things with retraining the brain and neuro-linguistic programming and affirmations and, you know, just all the things of how do you retrain and rewire your subconscious mind or even like visions, vision boards, the secret, you know, things like that, that are, uh, you know, just the law of attraction and et cetera. So I'm just really familiar with, with a lot of these things. And then on top of that, my dealings with what I deal with on a daily basis from a client base or patient base is chronic and complex illnesses, you know, whether it be mold, heavy metal toxicity, Lyme, those things have been around for many years. And now in the most recent three years, long COVID. I mean, how many people do I see now with long COVID that would say that they have a PTSD component to their case, whether it's PTSD of 
of of you know certain supplements or certain triggers or certain places or certain memories or or they're just now they're they have a a, a different threshold for stress. So it's just really really common. And I think that the science of mechanisms, you know, neuroinflammation and and, and toxicity, the science of mechanism works the same for everyone. But I'm just really fascinated in my practice by seeing like who gets better and who does not get better because it's not like the supplements that we prescribed or the mechanisms that we're hitting are missing. It's usually more about the patients and their application of these things and their big picture mindset of like retraining their nervous system and keeping realistic expectations and things like that also, but retraining their nervous system. You have to retrain your nervous system. So I'm going to go through four steps to this. Now, as is usual for my podcast, each of these four steps has like 10 steps. So really, there's going to be like 40 things that I talk about. And the point isn't that you're going to need to do all 40 of these things. The point is just to connect you with what's available and what's out there um, as far as some of the treatment modalities and some of the thoughts. But, but again, looking at it from a mechanism standpoint. So real quickly, just starting off with like some mechanism things before we get into these, these you know, four categories. So one, you think about stress. Well, your sympathetic nervous system responds to stress. Your brain responds to stress. Your nervous system responds to stress. And then that triggers hormones and, and cellular changes. So if you see a tiger when you walk out of your door this morning, immediately your eyes are going to see that and immediately certain changes are going to happen in your body. But that's your nervous system. Your nervous system responds to stress. Then it triggers things like your HPA axis. So even in the world of like adrenal fatigue and afternoon slumps and wired and tired, there's often often an adrenal component to a lot of these cases as well, but it's the nervous system that responds to stress. And so if your nervous system is treating everything as a stressor or as a danger, then all the time your body's going through this hormonal and neurotransmitter stress response. And it's known as fight or flight, you know, sympathetic activation is fight or flight. So it's preparing your body to do one of two things, either fight the tiger or run from the tiger. But that's how we handle uh, danger. We either confront it head on or we hide from it. But it's that danger response. That's the sympathetic. That's the gas pedal of life. And then again, in most of these cases, mold, Lyme, long COVID, etc., we don't have any real problem pressing the gas pedal of life. It's more like how do we wind down and how do we relax and how do we get good sleep and how do we get good recovery? Because the opposite side of fight or flight is rest and digest. Or there's another more like adult term that's two more Fs and it's feed and you can guess what the other F is. But that's the opposite of fight or flight. When your body's in fight or flight, guess what it's not doing? It's not resting and digesting. So then your gut gets thrown off your recovery, your inflammation, you know, all these things that are just so important for rest and deep sleep and digestion and your body like rebuilding and repairing and regenerating tissue and cells. And, you know, if you cut your hand and, and you know, you cover it with a bandage and three days later it's, it's healed, well, your body's got to do a lot of work to figure that out. All that's happening more so, I should say, when you're in 
rest and digest. So that's more the brake pedal. That's the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the calming nervous system. So we want to get the body out of fight or flight and get it into rest and digest. Now, that's a big picture concept, but as your body's under this stress response, this is another thing that's really important and is also really confusing. You know, you, you, you might see people online or hear people about like adrenal fatigue and it sounds so simple. And, and the big picture concept is really true and is really simple. It's like if you whip the horse that you're riding, it's going to go faster under stress, but it can't do that forever. If you keep whipping it and whipping it and whipping it, eventually that horse is going to burn out and it's going to start to slow down. So the, the overall concept of adrenal fatigue has never been inaccurate, but there's some, some you know, I don't know, misleading wording in that and HPA axis dysfunction is more appropriate. But even, even understanding this imbalance of cortisol and epinephrine it, it gets quite confusing, even if you're doing like adrenal lab tests or doing uh, neurotransmitter tests or things like that. But under stress, your body releases cortisol, the main stress hormone from the adrenals, and it also releases epinephrine and norepinephrine, or better known as adrenaline and noradrenaline. And those are all released under times of stress, all fight or flight hormones and neurotransmitters. Cortisol is anti-inflammatory. Like think about getting a cortisone shot or taking prednisone or something like that. It's anti-inflammatory. Adrenaline is pro-inflammatory. So at first you're releasing both of these things and cortisol, you know, cortisol gets demonized is my point of like, oh, high cortisol is so bad. Well, high cortisol, and that's, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. As your body releases a lot of cortisol, your receptors get burned out. So your brake pedal, the pads get worn out. The brakes don't stop you as well as they did before because your body's released all this cortisol in response to all this stress. And so the receptors get burned out. So along those lines, cortisol can go from normal to too high, and then it can go to too low. And the treatment for all of those things in a functional medicine world is still like reduce your stress, reduce stimulants, support your circadian rhythms, and take adrenal support. And it works for both. It works for high cortisol, it works for low cortisol. I mean, those things work, you know, for both of those, both of those situations, but, you know, there's a lot of nuance to that also. But that's cortisol versus epinephrine. What a lot of people that I see experience, regardless of what their four-point or six-point uh, cortisol samples say or their Dutch tests or things like that, a lot of people have what I would call this wired and tired presentation where they're tired, like the typical adrenal fatigue. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. I've got an afternoon slump. I've two, three in the afternoon. I need a nap. And then when it comes time for bed, 9, 10, 11 o'clock, it's like, man, I'm wired. I can't wind down. I've got a rapid heart rate. And so on one end, that's like low cortisol, like, oh, I'm tired. And on the other end, it's like high adrenaline. But it's this wired and tired. And there's so much more nuance to that, too, of like one of the most common things that I run is a mosaic diagnostics urinary organic acid test. And it looks at neurotransmitters. So we'll often see these imbalances with neurotransmitters where this dopamine metabolite called homovanillic acid goes really, really high. And then the epinephrine, norepinephrine metabolite is really, really low. And it makes it look like high dopamine and low adrenaline. But normally the people have the opposite presentation. They've got rapid heart rate. They've got inability to sleep. They've got insomnia. They're easily triggered. 
they're like, man, I don't feel like I have low adrenaline. I feel like my adrenaline never turns off. So there's a gene that controls that called dopamine beta hydroxylase. And anyway, I digress, but I'll find that on labs oftentimes. But it's more the, uh, the, the presentation that somebody's coming in with as far as like this wired and tired. Then another thing to think about is like this concept of what's called allostatic load. What allostatic load means is that stressors in your life accumulate. And if you went through a lot of stress in your 20s and 30s, that's still sticking with you in your 50s, 60s, 70s. And, and it's adding rocks to your backpack. Rocks to your backpack is the best metaphor of like stressors accumulate. So we know about the association with like adverse childhood events and, and how that can lead to autoimmunity down the road. And these traumas as a child and adverse child events and stressors that stick with your body. So I think that's a really, really important concept to just keep in mind. And then the last one is that your body responds to stress as stress. So there's mental stress. We all know what that is. That's job, life, bills, relationship. You know, that's typical stress. You know, the COVID era was just stressful, you know, just uh, the hype, the fear, all those things. But we all know what mental stress is. I don't think I need to talk much more about that. We know what that one is. But the other thing is physical stress. So it could be a, a deficiency, like, you know, even water. If I don't give you water, your body's going to be stressed. And in fact, that's even a, there's actually a, a, a study that water deprivation stress induced or water deprivation induced stress. Um, but also, let's say leaky gut. Let's say you've got an old knee injury that's inflamed and it's triggering kind of a stress response. Or let's say you're sedentary. You sit at a desk job. That's a stressor on your body. Your body's designed to be moving. Let's say on the other end of that spectrum, you're overtraining. You're training too much. Well, that's a stressor on your body. So there's in this concept of stress, there's something called hormesis, which looks basically like a, a graph. What's the opposite of a U-graph? Like an N-graph, I guess. Like a bell curve. It's a bell curve. Whereas a little bit of stress is good for you. Like in the case of exercise, not enough is not good. And too much is not good. But like Goldilocks, we want it just right. But your body responds to physical stress and uh, the same way as it does mental stress. And the last one, the most important one, is toxic stress. So all getting to this concept of a cell danger response. When your cells sense danger, they sense stress. They go into fight or flight or they go into just like the cell danger response, maybe not fight or flight from a, from a hormonal standpoint, but from a cellular standpoint, when they sense danger, uh, and there's a quote from this, this paper, I'll explain the paper a little bit more in a second, but it says, when your cells go to war, they behave the way that nations do. They harden their borders and don't trust their neighbors. And that, the point of that is like toxins, whether it's a, you could have no stress mentally. You could have, you know, a billion dollar bank account and a, you know, beautiful life and beautiful family and just no problems at all and be a world-class perfect athlete. And if you're toxic, your body's experiencing stress and it's experiencing this cell danger response. And so your body's getting danger signals. So your body responds to stressors, whether they are real or they are perceived. And so I think that's another important like next segue is danger, danger, danger. So there's this concept, again, called the cell danger response that's well known in the functional medicine 
mold lime heavy metal world and maybe not so well known in the traditional academia and traditional conventional science world but the mechanism is really really cool it's been developed by this person named robert navio um and i think that an interesting thing is that the hallmark papers in the cell danger response were published in the journal mitochondria so it's like your mitochondria is what does all this sensation so the point is that we see this so commonly in covid long covid in vaccine injuries, in mold, lime, heavy metal toxicity, because your body has experienced a danger that you may have not even known about. If you've got mold in your apartment and you're living in it for the last five years, your cells have been sensing danger and they're responding appropriately. So sometimes it's not even an inappropriate response. Sometimes it's an appropriate response, but there's danger. So this cell danger response. And so no matter what, as I get into these root causes and, and, and things that you can do, I should say, no matter what, think the root cause of this is danger, whether that danger is real or perceived. So this solution, the antidote to danger is safety. So like removing the actual danger, you know, detoxifying mold or detoxifying, you know, lowering your viral burden or whatever the case is, but it's danger, whether that danger is real or it's perceived. And I think that that's really important too, especially in the COVID era era when there was just so much like fear-based stuff of like some people are like afraid to go out of their doors and afraid to be human, afraid to look people in the eyes, afraid to hug their friends, afraid to be in community. And all those things are, you know, I'm not, I don't know. I am saying that those were wrong. I think those were wrong. Now I'm not saying we should go out and all be super spreaders and stuff like that either, but Sometimes those dangers can be planted in and they're not actually real dangers. You know, I I continue to live my life and did not end up dropping dead. Now, of course, I'm not saying that that everybody should have done that, but just saying those dangers can be perceived. Those dangers can be built. And you know that the media just feeds off of fear. So if you're a traditional conventional media, you know, consumer – it is 100% fear-based. I mean, that's that's what sells, you know, fear of the weather, fear of the stock market, fear of the virus, fear of the taxes, whatever the case is, like fear sells. So a lot of times you are conditioned to be fearful. If you, if you lived in a home that might have been fear-based, it might have been like, well, you got to wash your hands all the time and you, got, you can't do this. It's dangerous. You can't play on the monkey bars. It's dangerous. You can't do these things. It's dangerous. Now, we also know I'm not suggesting that we're reckless. I'm not like letting my kids go out and play in traffic. I'm like, hey, be smart. But that doesn't mean be scared of everything. Quite the opposite. If you look at what's really logical, fear is not generally a, a, a an intelligent part of logic. Most things are not that scary, but fear gets in and it can grow. And you know, once that seed gets planted and things like that, so. That's, that's no matter what, think the root cause is danger. And the antidote is safety. So you got to get yourself actually in safety, like removing toxins, but you can also trick your brain into believing that it's safe. So that's what I'm going to go into now. So then also, before I go into these four things, there's other things that I didn't have time to talk about. Like a, a great one is like EMDR. EMDR is really, 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 really fascinating. I'm not trained in it. One of my good buddies is a couple people that I work with. Are, and it's trauma therapy. You know, it's it's a, common in the counseling world, common in the therapy world. Uh, EMDR, 
is is really good for trauma and working back through the layers of your your trauma. There's another one even that's different, but it's called the Emotion Code. Uh, Bradley Nelson, really great um, book and just you know system. Uh, another one's like exposure therapy. You know, the counselor in my office is certified in exposure therapy, which is like, hey, let's expose you to your fear and then talk you through that fear and kind of reverse that fear, work back the layers of the onions with that. Um, with regards to like clinical therapies, then there's also neurofeedback and quantitative EEG. And I think that that's important. That's something that I'm super into right now. We are doing in our office. We've been, that's basically what I've been studying for the last nine months is running all these EEGs on people and doing neurofeedback. And it's pretty fascinating that even in PTSD, there is a repeatable, signature pattern that is seen in brain wavelength, especially with reduced alpha wave output, but that's seen in in PTSD. So you can do neurofeedback, have quantitative EEG scans. That's more in clinic. So like you get an EEG scan, you do neurofeedback. There's also something at home that we've been doing. All this, I'm just throwing it out there right now, but that we've been offering in our clinic. It's called audio visual entrainment and google that if you want ave audio visual entrainment the device that we sell is called the david delight and it's quite fascinating but it's a way to retrain your brain at home it uses flashing light glasses which are crazy and binaural beats and there's 25 different programs that you can set to like if you're trying to calm the brain down like one of the uh counselors I work with in my office that's going to be doing the neurofeedback, she said the other day, she's borrowing our David, the David Delight, and she's like, I'm hijacking that thing. I'm not giving it back because I'm sleeping so great with it. So that's the David Delight, and it's at home, and you know you can do it in your own bed or on your couch or something like that. So there are cool things that did not make it on my list. Now, 20 minutes into this podcast, let's jump into these solutions and what can you do to retrain your brain. There are four categories that I've divided this into. And I think that it's a it's not about picking one or the other, but about doing a little bit of all of them, depending on your your weaknesses. You know, again, this isn't to just say like, hey, everybody that's ever been sick needs to do all these things. That's the point of working with somebody like myself is like, hey, you should try this. You should try this. You should try this. You know, somebody that just left has four kids at home. I'm not suggesting that she do coffee enemas every day because they're like, good luck or meditate either because, again, good luck. Maybe during nap time, you know, it's not impossible. There are mothers of four that have meditation practices, but good luck with some of these things, but picking and choosing what's going to be best for you, but understanding the mechanisms and the concepts of how they are rewiring or retraining the nervous system, and especially the stress response system. So number one is stimulate your vagus nerve. Now, that's just so powerful, I would say. You know, I even did this podcast interview, like I mentioned, with the vestibular uh, retraining doctor, uh, Dr. Ashley Contreras will be the next episode. But she was talking about vagus nerve stimulation yesterday um, and just how important it was. And I don't know if she was aware that uh, of you know the fact that I've implemented that for years and you know, put a video out several years ago and have put you know many 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 hundreds of people on tens devices to stimulate their vagus nerve, but that's one way of doing it. But she was just talking about how important that is, even for vestibular. That goes into some deeper layers of like trauma and vagus nerve and the polyvagal theory. Actually, today 
I had a consult with one of my clients who's a mental health practitioner. And yesterday, I did too, actually. The one yesterday is EMDR certified. The one today is polyvagal certified. So there's even from a counseling standpoint, this polyvagal theory. We know that there's different sides of the vagus nerve and some are more primitive and some are more safety-based and, you know, et cetera. There's a, there's a lot more science that goes into this, but no matter what, it's stimulating the vagus nerve, encouraging vagus motor outflow. And the vagus nerve is part of that parasympathetic nervous system. So I've got so many stories of people just loving their vagus nerve stimulation and people saying like, boy, at first my body did not like that. I was stuck in fight or flight. I broke out in a cold sweat. I had a rapid heart rate when I started doing that. And then my body like broke through that and and then a wave of relaxation came over me. So, so common. Somebody's body's so stuck in this fight or flight, danger, 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 that people begin to thrive on it. It becomes your pattern and, and it just becomes your, your normal state. And breaking you out of that pattern can be done with vagus nerve stimulation. Now, you can also do things like Yoga is phenomenal for the vagus nerve. Meditation is phenomenal for the vagus nerve. Slow, intentional movements like Tai Chi and Qigong are really good for the vagus nerve. Doing things like deep breathing stimulates the vagus nerve. But here's the ones that I'm talking about that are different than that. Because most people do know that like yoga, meditation, that those things are good to calm your body down. Deep breathing, but here's how you can stimulate your vagus. One, the tens device. You know, I love the tens device. I've got, I actually have mine sitting right here. I do it pretty often. We, we, we've, we've, you know, I don't know, sold many, 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 many hundreds of them, um, and just have heard great stories and great results. So I always tell everybody it's not a miracle cure, but for six seventy dollars, it's an amazing tool to stimulate your vagus nerve. Some of the others, and all these too, I have videos about them. I have an entire podcast about the vagus nerve, so I'm, I'm skimming over that today. But the TENS device, look into that if you want more info or check my YouTube or check my old podcast episode. The other things for vagus are gargling, gagging, st- or humming. I was on uh, Amazon yesterday. I don't even remember what I was looking for, but I saw something that said like, you know, daily vagus nerve exercises. And it had like, you know, 500 five-star reviews and it was like 15 bucks. And I was like, man, I should have wrote this book a couple of years ago um, because it looked very popular and was and was selling and things like that too. But getting people doing these things daily is just really, really helpful no matter what. But gargling, stimulate your gag, reflex, humming. And then the last one for vagus is coffee enema. You know, my mentor, Dr. Karazian, has a good article on his website. This is how to stimulate the vagus nerve using a coffee enema. And he just talks about the mechanisms because the whole mechanism of how coffee enema works is it stimulates these acetylcholine receptors in the liver and gallbladder, but that stimulates the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is under acetylcholine control and there's nicotinic and muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. And that's a not an uncommon piece of like long COVID as well. But uh, anyway, stimulate your vagus nerve is step number one. Step number two is to challenge your autonomic inputs. You know, your autonomic nervous system and this concept of dysautonomia. We, I haven't talked about that that much yet, but dysautonomia is often a piece of this, of the PTSD, of the limbic system dysfunction, of this imbalanced stress response, we get this dysautonomia because we get the stress response that fires off at inappropriate times. So all of a sudden your heart rate might go up to 120 
or your blood pressure might shift or your digestion might shift or you get a flushing or you get a bloating or you get you know some physical change even though nothing really happened in your life but it's your autonomics these things are usually automatic and so if your autonomic nervous system has been hijacked and you have dysautonomia you've got imbalance in these autonomic functions then hijack it back you can override many autonomic functions. Like if I don't think about it, if you hit me on the head with a hammer right now and I pass out, I'm still going to breathe and my heart's still going to beat. So it works automatically, but I can override that. I could speed up my breathing. I can slow down my breathing. I could speed up my heart rate. I could slow down my heart rate. Now, sometimes it's not as easy to slow it down, but you can speed up and slow down your breathing and your heart rate and your temperature and some of these autonomic functions. And that can be really, really, really helpful. In fact, I know a lot of people that in the long COVID mold world, they're like, hey, this is really when I'm when I rounded the corner was when I started doing some of these, you know, more physiologic autonomic retraining things. So the first autonomic function to override is your breathing. You can do like one of my favorites is box breathing. This is not a podcast on breathing. There are podcasts, entire podcasts about breathing strategies and things like that. And there's Buteco breathing, but box breathing is a pretty easy concept. Like let's say it's four seconds. It's four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds out, four seconds hold. And just by thinking about that, first off, it's very meditative to just have a one one single thought going through your mind and be controlling that action and try to keep your brain just focused on one single thought and focused on breathing. That alone is hard enough. That's that's often, you know, part of people's meditation practice. But you're overriding that system. And the more often you override that system, the more control you're going to have on that system and the more it's going to start doing what it's supposed to. But that's that's breathing. The next one is temperature, your temperature. So it's very trendy, you know, thanks mostly to Huberman and, and other people. And Jack Cruz, you know, was really the, the godfather of this. But cold thermogenesis and the, fact, the, the effects that cold thermogenesis has on your mitochondria and has on metabolism and, 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 and brown fat and things like that, but also just what it has on the autonomic nervous system and the, the dopamine and, and other neurotransmitters that, you know, Huberman talks about a lot for like cold plunges. I'm all for cold plunges. I just saw a long COVID person the other day and she was like, this is really when I rounded the corner was when I started doing cold plunges. But the other thing that I'm a fan of, so that's like jumping in a cold ice bath or, or, or cold, you know, water. But the other thing that I'm a really big fan of is contrast showers, contrast showers, because challenging your nervous system's ability to respond. Let's say you're sitting in the shower. It's comfortable. You're warm. You're chilling, whatever, washing your hair, whatever. And then you flip it all of a sudden to cold. Your body's got to respond to that stress. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, this is new. I've got to respond. And then you, so let's say you do that for 60 seconds. And then you flip back to warm. And then your body's like, oh, now I've got to respond to this. And then you flip back to cold. I've got to respond to stress. And it's like, ah, oh, now I've got to respond to this. So you're challenging this stress response because that challenges uh, blood vessel, uh, uh, vaso, vasoconstriction, vasodilation, vasomotor is what I was thinking of, I guess. Challenges vasomotor pseudomotor, pilomotor. It challenges sympathetic versus parasympathetic because that's what regulates temperature control. The sympathetics regulate vasomotor 
Pilo motor, which is hair standing up on end, and pseudomotor, which is sweating. These are all mechanisms to warm our body up or cool our body off. This is all done by sympathetic. Like if you get really scared, you might start sweating or your palms might get sweaty or your pits might get sweaty or different things like that. That's sympathetic, parasympathetic balance. And all you're trying to do here is challenge gas pedal versus brake pedal. You're not trying to slam on the brake. You're not trying to slam on the gas, but a good driver in a car can go back and forth between gas and brake and you barely even notice. So I think that temperature is a really, really powerful, powerful tool that not enough people are utilizing in these, uh, in this space of, of neurologic disorders, I would say. Then the last one is heart math. You, know, you can't really challenge your blood pressure as much, things like that, but heart, or, or excuse me, it's heart rate. And how can you challenge that? Well, you can speed your heart rate up and exercise. That's great. And I'm all a huge fan of that. Now, most of the people that I'm referring to when I talk about my patients, they're like unable to exercise or they have a certain tolerance level where they're able to exercise. Like, you know, I saw somebody yesterday and she was psyched. She was like, I'm running. I'm running half a mile. I'm running again. I'm exercising again. It's like that's a huge win to her. Um, so it, 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 sometimes people cannot run or cannot get their heart rate over 120 or they're going to flare. So it's not always about speeding up the heart rate. But how can you try? Sometimes the heart rate is the most frustrating one. Like you're trying to slow it down. I have so many patients that their heart rate might be in the 120s, 150s, just like for no reason. A lot of times it's yeast or mold related, but something's triggering this like rapid heart rate all the time, not just palpitations and things like that, but just like all the time tachycardia. But one of the best tools is heart math. Heart math, you know, Joe Dispenza talks about heart math. Heart math is very famous. Heart math has been around for years, like decades. There's a lot of research on heart math. There's also a lot of con- con- concepts of heart math that are a little more, uh, I don't say out there, but like, uh, hard to be measure or confirm, but like coherence and some of those concepts that are quantum mechanisms, but they're also very true of your heart and your feelings and your heart rhythm and trying to get into coherence. But heart math is a system and it's a device. We sell them. And I've had people with dysautonomia that said that like, hey, you know, again, you know, they're doing all the detox gut work, but they're like, man, heart math was really a game changer for me for their POTS or dysautonomia. So I have one sitting right here in my hand. It's called the inner balance. And it hooks to your ear. It hooks to your ear and then it Bluetooths to your phone. And it's tracking your heart rate and your heart rate variability and your coherence. So it's something that you can do every day. And you, I mean, you could technically, you could have your vagus nerve stimulation hooked up to your left ear. You have your heart math hooked up to your right ear. You could easily do these things together. You could do box breathing while you're doing both of them. But that, I mean, that might get a little confusing. But these things are not pick one or the other. It's like, how do I combine them with with something that's sustainable and not burning out? Because that's an important thing to talk about too, is that we're rewiring neural connections. So doing this for a week is not going to like rewire neural connections, but doing it for two months straight, three months straight, will absolutely start rewiring these neural connections. But that's the heart rate and heart math. Um, Yeah, that's it. The next one, number three. So number one was stimulate your vagus nerve. Number two was challenge your autonomic inputs. Hijack your autonomic nervous system back and take control of that and, and, and override that dysautonomia. Number three is challenge your visual and sensory inputs. So one of the things I want to start off by talking about is 
this this vis, vestibular retraining program called VizStim. I'm not going to talk about it too much because, again, my whole next podcast episode is an interview with the founder of it. But there is vestibular therapy that is out there. Now, some of my people with vestibular issues, dysautonomia issues, they've, they've been referred to vestibular rehab and they've done vestibular rehab. Out, there's good therapists and bad therapists. I see so many people that have been to bad therapists and they've been told things like, shake your head back and forth a thousand times a day. And it makes them way worse. So I think that with any functional neurology retraining and exercise, I think it's important to note that you want to push your limits as much as you can, but you do not want to overdo it. You do not want to challenge a system that's already compromised. Sometimes you need to nurse the system back. And and Ashley and I talked about this yesterday of like, sometimes the people are super acute and they can't stand up without the room spinning. Well, you've got to get that calmed down before you can really challenge that, but challenge your visual and sensory inputs. Dr. Ashley has two at-home kits. They're reasonably priced. We laughed about it on our podcast. I said, you probably need to charge more, but they're great. And and I've done them with my daughters. I've done them with kids. I've done them with clients and patients and connect them with these kids, but it's vestibular rehab at home and post-concussion rehab at home. Those are the two kits. They're very, 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 very similar because it's retraining these vestibular inputs. So many people with dysautonomia, with PTSD, with these kind of symptoms, they might also have motion sickness or they might have sensitivity to things like flashing lights or chemicals, or smells, or noises. Noise sensitivity is so common in my clinic, and it's so common. Tinnitus, ringing in the ears, vertigo, so incredibly common. Dizziness, so incredibly common with these 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 people that I'm talking about that need their nervous system retrained. So doing some at-home vestibular rehab is great. I think another one that I, I don't talk about often enough on the podcast is chiropractic. You know, I don't do any adjusting anymore, but I don't want to skim over it. Chiropractic is so incredibly powerful. The reason that chiropractic works, one of, of course, but like your joints provide proprioceptive input to your brain. And if that proprioceptive input to the brain gets shut down, your brain begins to degenerate really quickly. If people are put in a full body cast or they're put in a plain room where there's not a lot of sensory inputs, the brain begins to degenerate really, 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 really quickly. Now, the thing with your spine is your spine has the most proprioception in it. The base of your skull has so much more proprioception than anywhere else in your entire body. It's unbelievable, your uh, suboccipitals, but also your whole spinal, spinal musculature and spinal joints are just loaded with proprioceptors. So if one of those joints of the spine, which each movable vertebrae has six joints to it. There's tons of joints to the spine. If one of those is subluxated or fixed or not moving, it's going to disrupt the proprioception. So even doing things like getting adjusted and freeing up that joint mobility, but even things like vibration plates or percussion instruments or massage just provides proprioception to your body. And you need that. You need movement, but you also need physical stimulation to challenge those proprioceptive or sensory inputs. But your visual and sensory inputs, that's number three. And VizStim is something that I think is just really, really cool with this and rewiring your nervous system, not necessarily rewiring the cell danger response in the same way, but rewiring some of the downstream effects that often are a part of, you know, these patients' presentations with vertigo and anxiety and and other things and imbalanced stress easily triggered by trivial stimuli and things like that. It's really common with uh, vestibular stuff. Then your last one, 
the most important one, number four, is change your psychological inputs. Remind your body that it is safe. I think this one's so cool. First off, this is getting to be more and more famous. There are limbic system retraining programs that are out there. Like the Gupta program is the one that I have the most experience with. Ashok Gupta, Ashok, Ashok, I forget. But um, it's a great program. And it's, you know, there's a lot of testimonials and stuff like that about people, how life's changing from this. There's another one called DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining System. I have a whole video about these and the cell danger response and things like that. I'll link it in the show notes. But these are very, very common in the mold world, in the Lyme world, in the long COVID world. So Gupta program is one. DNRS is another one. Primal Trust is a third one. That, that's kind of a newer one that I just, and I just referred somebody to it the other day and he texted me back. He's like, Primal Trust seems like an affordable version of DNRS on steroids. And I was like, okay, interesting. I think it's a membership cost, so I don't know that it's more affordable. Um, I think they're all pretty affordable from what I've seen. Um, but it's more about the time commitment and putting the work in for these programs, but they're retraining your limbic system, retraining your nervous system, retraining your amygdala um, so that it doesn't sense fear as easily. And then a fourth one is uh, Beth O'Hara's new one. It's from MassCell360.com. I don't know that much about the details of it, but I really trust basically anything that she puts out content-wise, and I'm sure it's great. All of these include things to just re retrain, rewire the brain into thinking that it's safe. So you could do that on your own. You can do that through affirmations. You know, that's the beautiful thing about this is that the brain does not know. Your subconscious mind does not know what is truth from what is false. So that's why you could train a kid to think that, you know, different things about, I don't know, I'm not even going to say any names out loud of real versus fake, but you can, you, can, you can train them that something is real and they just, they'll believe that is real if that's all they're ever told. So if you teach your kids that everything is a danger, guess what their brains are thinking all the time? I am surrounded by danger. I've got to be safe all the time. The world is a dangerous place. Outside is danger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, kind of like Nemo. If you train your kid that the world is a safe place, then they go out, and again, you want, to, you want to be kind of in the middle, but you can train this. So you can retrain your brain. You can speak life into your brain. You can speak safety into your brain. You can speak trust into your brain, but you have to speak it, and you have to speak it all the time. There are other things, before I go a little deeper into this, that are just really, really important for your nervous system, like laughter. So like seriously, if you want to retrain your nervous system, watch a comedy twice a week love, have a good community, have love, have oxytocin, give hugs, give kisses, love your family, have gratitude. My gosh, there's nothing more healing than gratitude because gratitude is a feeling of safety. If you feel like, like for example, let's think of something like this. Like if somebody's really rich and they lose $1,000, they're like, no big deal, you know, no danger. If somebody's really poor and they lose $1,000, it's panic, it's anxiety. It's the same event that happened but it's their response to that that is different. And so the same thing with grateful. So many people have so little and they're so grateful for it. And so many people have so much and they're so ungrateful for it. They're focused more on like, oh, yeah, I'm really blessed, but I wish I didn't have this vertigo. 
oh, yeah, I'm really blessed. I've got this great life. I've got these great kids. Oh, I just wish my stomach didn't hurt every day. That is a victim mentality. And it's just, it's not to say that you, can, you don't want betterment. You don't want to improve those symptoms. But it's like, man, focus on the gratitude. Focus on the grateful things. Focus on all the great things. Focus on the things in your life that are healing. Focus on the safety and remind yourself about that and surround yourself with that. I will often talk about this and talk about my alma mater. Palmer College of Chiropractic, because in the 50s, Palmer was covered. They painted over it in the 60s when BJ died or something, but there's still a ton. There's still a ton. They're one of my favorite things ever. The whole school is surrounded by epigrams. If you see pictures of Palmer College of Chiropractic in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, literally, I'm not kidding you, it looks like a tattooed person that's sleeved up top to bottom. Every single square inch of the walls is covered with epigrams. And every single one of them is really witty, but every single one of them speaks life and speaks truth into you. And there's still a poster that hangs in Palmer, and it says, why these epigrams? It says, because what is seen is read, what is read is thought, what is thought will become, or something along those lines. I'm butchering that a little bit, but you get the point of its repetition, 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 and more repetition. So one of the things even for like, you know, I'm a huge fan of a vision board. I just texted my wife last night. I was like, we got to get back on that vision board, Rob Deerdeck vision board. Um, We had a vision board in, in chiropractic college. In my first clinic, I'm not kidding you. It's kind of like watching The Secret. And I'm a Christian too. Some of these things are not considered to be like, you know, Christian, but they're just like the way things work. So I'm not saying like it's all this new agey type stuff, but we our, our first clinic looked exactly like a picture that we had on our vision board. We even had a Jeep parked in front of this picture on our vision board and we drove a Jeep at that time. And like that vision board stuff is so incredibly real. You see yourself as your future self, and you will become that. But you can't just sit like hanging on your wall and be like, now now it's going to happen. I'm going to attract it. You've got to repeat it all the time. Uh, One of my favorite things is laminating things and putting them in the shower, laminating affirmations, laminating things of gratitude, laminating things that remind myself about who I am and where my body is and what direction my health is heading and what my purpose is and what, you know, just I'm rambling a little bit because I'm really passionate about this, but they say that if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So you set, if you want to get on the right track, first you type in your final destination And then the GPS is going to send you the directions for that. So you pick a point five years ahead of you, you pick a point 10 years ahead of you, you pick a point six months ahead of you of where you want to be. And you put that as your your final destination and life's going to figure out how to get you towards that. But you have to surround yourself with it. The laminates in the shower, the affirmations, put them on the background of your phone, put epigrams all over the place, put a picture of your, your big why, put a picture of it on your dashboard, put it on your mirror in the morning, you know, just all these things. You can retrain your brain. The last story that I'll tell, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but one of the most famous and influential people out there in, I don't know, let's say the leadership world is Brendan Bouchard. He's kind of like a like maybe maybe second fiddle to Tony Robbins. He's like the top dogs of all time. So I hate to say second fiddle for Brendan Bouchard, but he's just a very well, very famous, well known person with regards to leadership. And he had this thing where he said, "I used to when I entered a room, I would like tap the walls and say." He had this mantra where it was like, "I'm entering this room." happy, healthy, willing to serve or something like that. You know, and so as you enter a hundred rooms 
and you keep repeating that, well, guess what? Eventually you walk into a room and you don't have to say anything. And you guess what your brain's saying? Boom, I'm entering this room, happy, healthy, all these things. Same thing with a morning routine, same with state training. As you do that, it's hard at first, but it's like walking through a trail in the, in the woods. If it's thick woods, it's going to be really hard to get through. But the next time you walk through that, it's going to be a little more clear. And if you keep walking through that trail every single day, eventually that trail becomes well-defined easy to follow, easy to maintain, even if you don't use it for a week or two or a month or two, it becomes easier and easier and easier. But it's about doing these things on a regular basis. So what I would challenge everybody to do is set some kind of plan in place of like, not any one of those things, but on a, let's say for the next two months, well, every single day, you should remind your body of the psychological inputs, the affirmations, the limbic system, the vision vision board, the gratitude. Those things are so incredibly powerful. That thing should be a daily thing. So, so should stimulate your vagus nerve. Maybe so should the contrast showers. You know, some of these things are easy enough that you can do them every day without it really being a pain in the butt. Meditation is like the best example of like the most powerful thing. It's just hard for people to be compliant and hard for people to be disciplined and hard for people to not burn out and things like that, but it's so incredibly powerful. But let's say you're doing a TENS device every day, you're doing breathing exercises every day, you're doing contrast shower every day, you're doing some brain training, and let's say you're committing like a half an hour a day to this. I don't think that's outside of, of sustainable, but the goal is that in the future, you're not going to need to, you know, as often. Even for me, a lot of my vision things have, I don't want to say they've come true, but it's one of those things that's like, man, I got to keep my foot on the gas with this because now my life is like, I don't know, I would say pretty smooth with my kids and business and stuff like that. But you got to keep, you got to keep that, that, find, that next destination on the radar. Otherwise, you're just out wandering. Um, and so that's my, my encouragement. Stimulate your vagus nerve, challenge your autonomic inputs and try to override your autonomic function, challenge your visual and sensory inputs, and then, and then challenge your psychological inputs. Those are the four things you can challenge. And it's, if you do that, you're going to retrain your nervous system. You're going to be less responsive to stress. You're going to be more resilient. You know, resilience is one of those words that you only know what it means. If, when you feel it, you're like, wow, I'm more resilient. That trivial stressor no longer bothered me. That uh, angry customer, that angry spouse, that kid who needed to be parented or that bill that needed to be paid. I no longer was paralyzed by my stress. I was more handling it. That's that increased resilience. So anyway, one of my favorite episodes I've ever done, and I haven't even hit the stop button yet. Please let me know if you liked it. Please let me know if you want more of it. Please let me know if you got value from it. Please share it with a friend, all those things. Find me on Instagram. Find me on YouTube. I'll post some of those videos and some of those other things that I mentioned in here. I don't know. I'll post a link to HeartMath. I'll post a link to VizStim. I'll post a link to some of my videos. But um, I don't know. Show notes are not my number one thing either because once I record this episode, I just want to get it out. But hopefully that is valuable to you. And stay tuned because I, I, I already have the next episode done. So I, it's a guarantee that it's going to be released soon. Uh, more info on VizStim from Dr. Ashley Contreras, a vestibular rehabilitation doctor of physical therapy. So talk to you guys next time. Mm-hmm.